you want to open your copy of God's Word up to Hebrews 3, verse 7. It's Hebrews 3, verse 7. We, we made it now to the second warning passage of Hebrews. The first one began in chapter 2. And then we had an, an exhortation concerning the, the humanity of, of Christ uh, as the great second Adam. And now we're back to another warning passage. An exhortation is what the author of Hebrews calls it in Hebrews 13 um, when, he, when he tells us to bear with his word of exhortation. These, these warning passages seek to take our view away from ourselves and place it wholly upon Christ. In essence, what the author is doing when we come to these warning passages, if we understand them correctly, is, is he is showing us our complete inability to save ourselves in order that we might rest on the great high priest, we might rest in the great second Adam, that we might rest in the greater Moses. He's showing us that we're not worthy, but that Christ is. And so as, as we come to this passage this morning, it's important that we understand the context that has led up to it. In, in Hebrews 1, we talked about the fact that Christ is a much greater mediator of a much greater covenant, that he's forever above the law as delivered by angels. And then in, in chapter 2, we discuss the fact that he's the greater Adam, that although Adam failed in obedience to the Father and lost his right to the tree of life, Christ, in perfect obedience to the Father, gained life eternal and gives it to all who trust in him. That brought us to, to the beginning parts of chapter 3, where we were told that Christ is the greater Moses, who after achieving complete obedience, faithfully brings us home to the promised land. In our passage today, we're warned against, against trusting in ourselves to bring us into the promised land. We're warned against the disobedience that befalls when our faith is not in the promise. And so... If you would, let's look at our passage today. And we're looking at this in light of the fact that our passage last week ended with, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's read the word of God. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said, they always go astray in their hearts, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we who have believed enter the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. From his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a a hard passage, um, but it is a glorious one. And I pray this morning you would open our eyes to see the truth of it, that we would behold our Christ, that we would behold these warnings as, as, as true, and that we would fear lest anyone should have failed to reach your rest. Father, let this passage encourage us to be willing and be careful to exhort one another daily. Help this passage to encourage us to be the church for each other, to be brothers and sisters to each other, and to hold one another accountable, to keep each other accountable to the truth that is found in Christ. And if we ever see a brother lacking or stumbling, let us go to him with words of encouragement and the words of encouragement that are found only in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because we know, Lord, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches. And that apart from him, we can do nothing. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's a long passage. I know we've addressed it before. Um, and, and my goal this morning is to address it. Last time we addressed it in the view of a kinsman redeemer, we addressed it from the view of Christ redeeming the land. This morning, my goal is to address it contextually within Hebrews from, from the person who gave this message. Um, and, and what was his purpose? What was his purpose in giving us exhortation? Um, as I already said, I believe his purpose was to exhort us to trust in the greater Moses. He's exhorting us to, to, to trust wholly in the greater Moses to lead us home. Because if we don't, we'll end up like the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, he's, he's telling us to do that in light of the fact that we are a congregation just like the Israelites in the wilderness. So, so in, in, at Meribah, at Massa, when they rebelled against God, in the text quoted here, what you have is you have the Israelites who are in the wilderness led into the exodus by Moses. They pass through the Red Sea after it's been parted in two by the power of God. They've partaken in the Passover and their firstborn has been saved from death by the grace of God. And now as they sit in the wilderness being led by God's prophet, they're grumbling and complaining against God. And God says, I'm provoked, I'm angered, my wrath is coming, you shall not enter the rest, you shall die in the wilderness, your dead bodies shall fall here. In fact, God swore against Israel by his own life at that time. He said, as surely as I live, you will die. There was no chance for the Israelites at this point. They had rebelled against the promise. They had rebelled against God. And when God swears on his own life that you will die, you will die. This was sure 
for the Israelites. And now the author is taking that and saying, we are Israelites in the wilderness. We're the congregation of God in the wilderness on a pilgrimage toward the promised land. And if we don't believe the promise, we have no hope. The promise is what holds us fast. The promise of God is what keeps us. If we ever seek to rely on ourselves or hope in ourselves, we will fall into disobedience. The disobedience is the result of unbelief in this passage, as we'll see. It does not go the other way. The message is not obey and live. The message is live and obey. And so if we fail to to, to hope in the promise of God, that's when we fail to obey. If our strength does not come from Christ, we have no strength at all. So, as we begin our passage today, I have four points, but it's really two points that are repeated. Um, In verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3, we're going to talk about community failure. That's point one. In verses 13 through 14 of chapter 3, we're going to talk about community, community success. That's point two. Verses 15 through 19 of chapter 3, community failure. And then verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4, community success. So, so the, the thought is, the author goes through, here's how they failed. Here's how you don't fail. Here's how they failed. Here's how you don't fail. Notice, as we go through this passage, the author does not say, they failed, therefore you just need to obey. That's not the author's point. The author's point is they failed in disobedience, therefore you need to believe in the one who was obedient. So, we begin in verses 7 through 12. The the Holy Spirit, he says, is quoted. Um, When we talk about the Holy Spirit being quoted... The point is not that the author doesn't know who's speaking. The point is this word has authority. God has spoken in the past, and this word carries on and is relevant to the one who lives today. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit has spoken in Psalm 95 here. And and he he is talking about the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. And the Israelites in the wilderness fell and God swore against them in his wrath. And now he gives this exhortation to those living 400 years after entering Canaan. And he says, don't harden your hearts like they did. Because they didn't enter the rest. Notice that this exhortation from the author of Hebrews is written to believers. And we have to interpret it as such. This exhortation is not written to to some pagan community. This is written to the Hebrew church. The author is exhorting the Hebrew church not to harden their hearts. This is not necessarily a call to initially believe the gospel, but a call to continue in the truth of the gospel. This is a call that now that you have partaken in the covenant community, now that you have come to share in the blessings of the church, Don't turn away, because Christ is sufficient to keep you. This is a call today to every single believer not to harden the truth, their hearts, against the truth they once believed. The question is, will you continue to believe until the end? And and the thought being, being portrayed here as we look at this is, 
that although the Israelites experienced so many things at the hand of God, they still rebelled. They saw God's mighty hand work in the wilderness. They, they, they watched as God split the sea into two, as God provided a Passover lamb on their doorpost. And yet they still rebelled against God. Even after seeing all the mighty things he had done, they still rebelled. In the words of Hebrews 6, it was, it was as if they had, they had tasted the heavenly gift. They had manna in the wilderness. They, they shared in watching the Holy Spirit work. There were, there were so many things given by God. But they found no chance for repentance because they died in the wilderness. And the essence of what's being said is that all disobedience must be punished. God will swear in his wrath. God has sworn in his wrath that he will punish disobedience. God will punish the disobedient ones. And so the exhortation then in verse 12 is take care lest there be an unbelieving heart. See the switch. By nature, by nature, every single person has a heart like those Israelites in the wilderness. By nature, every single person is evil and unbelieving. By nature, every single person will rebel against God. So the author says, take care that you don't follow the nature that was, you were born with. Don't follow the nature you were born with. Because that evil, unbelieving heart will lead you to fall away from the congregation, to fall away from the blessings of the church, to fall away from the covenant community, and to die in the wilderness without ever inheriting the promised land. By nature, you will rebel. What's the other side? A believing heart. Exhort one another daily, verse 13 says. Community success. Over and opposed against the evil, unbelieving heart that leads God's people to fall in the wilderness, there is a believing heart. There's a daily exhortation. There there is a community of people exhorting one another and guiding one another and encouraging one another in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. There, there There is a glorious community. There are the people of God who care for one another. We're going to get more into what this exhortation is. But, but notice the thought is exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. The author is taking note of the fact that we are just like the Israelites. See, we can't come to this passage and read this warning and, and come at it as if, okay, so the, the Israelites, they failed over here. Why? Because they were disobedient. So what do we need to do? Well, let's just do the opposite. Let's obey. Oh, good luck. Right? We can't come at this passage as if all we need to do is just obey and we'll be fine. Because we can't. We're failures by nature. We're born into sin. And once sin has already taken over, there's no way we can defeat it on our own. The answer is not simply obedience. The author's answer is to say, hey, you have that fallen nature. You're so prone to disobedience. You're so prone to fail. You're so prone in your weakness to rebel. Therefore, every single day, it is incumbent that you be exhorting one another. 
Every single day, it is incumbent that you be told about the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. That you be told about the gloriousness of your Moses. That you be told about the greatness of your Redeemer. That you be told that although you are so insufficient, there is a Christ who is sufficient and he will bring you home. It is natural in our flesh to fall away from God. But by the power of the Spirit and the ways in which God works through his people, by his power, we will persevere to the end. And so we exhort one another in accordance with the power of God. We exhort one another by saying, hey, you know what? We are just like the Israelites. But the power of God has come down in the person and deity of Jesus Christ. And he can bring you through the wilderness. He will bring you to the promised land. He is the greater Moses. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? Because you're so prone to fall to the deceitfulness of sin. We will. We are going to be deceived if we do not keep our minds set upon Jesus Christ. If we are not exhorted and encouraged concerning the truth of Christ, we will fall to the deceitfulness of sin. There's, there's a hardness this passage talks about that comes. There's, there's the deceitfulness of sin, and then there's the continuance, continuance in sin that just leads to a hardness and a rebellion against God. And we watch as the church, as people come in, I'm sure you've seen it, come into the church, make a profession, and slowly go away. Why? Because the deceitfulness of sin, Jesus says in the parable of the sower, the worries of the world they become more important than the truth that is found in Jesus Christ and if we understand that about the nature of man then we will want to encourage our brothers daily we will want to exhort our sisters daily because we know that there's only one hope that can save them we know that there's only one thing that can defeat the flesh that is the power of Christ Every single time so far we've come to an exhortation in Hebrews, it's been about Jesus Christ. If you look at Hebrews 2.1, pay closer attention to what you've heard. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. In Hebrews 3.1, what's he say? Consider Jesus. And now he says here, exhort one another every day. What's the exhortation? The exhortation is pay closer attention to Jesus. Consider Jesus. He, by his grace, will bring you through the wilderness. I think so often when we think about these exhortations and we think about exhorting one another, like there's this idea that it has to be robust or it has to be something great. We as Christians ought to take joy in the simple truth of Christ. We as Christians ought to take joy in the fact that our Redeemer is sufficient. Your encouragement and exhortation to your brother does not have to be a sermon. Your encouragement and your exhortation to your sister does not have to be some profound theological truth that took hours in the scriptures to dig out. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Do you understand how profound that theological truth is? Your Redeemer lives. Your mediator mediates for you. 
Your high priest lives forever. Your king is fighting for you. We can exhort one another daily with the truth that is so simple and so sufficient. It's that simple, sufficient truth that brings us from this world to the next. It's that simple, sufficient truth that keeps us from falling in the wilderness like the Israelites. The truth that holds us is the truth that Jesus Christ holds us. We are to exhort one another concerning that. We are to remind one another concerning that. And this is, this is a way, a way, that God has chosen for the means of preservation of his church. Um, we, we talk about assurance of grace and salvation in our confession. Um, and, and one of the ways that we talk about assurance of grace and, and salvation being hindered is by a neglect of means of preservation. God has given means in his word by which we as Christians grow in grace and knowledge of the truth and understand his grace and love better in order that we are more assured of our salvation and better preserved when battles come. One of those means given here is the exhortation of the church. One of the means given here is the gathering of the saints together as God's people that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. God has given the church to us as a gift to help us through this wilderness. God has given us, our brothers and sisters, as a gift of grace that we're not alone in this battle. We are given the church that we may persevere unto the end. The great wisdom and sovereignty of God works in this way. That when he wants a man to persevere in the faith, when God wants to preserve a man, he does it through means. He, he gives that man the Lord's table. And he says, hey, take and eat. Take and eat this. Because as surely as you're drinking that cup, and as surely as you eat that bread, I will come back for you. And I will redeem you from this present age. He gives man baptism. And he says, hey, as surely as you go under that water, you have died to your sin. And as surely as you rise again, you will rise again to eternal life. He gives man the preaching of the word. And he says, hey, you get to sit under the preaching of the fact that Christ is sufficient and your savior. You get to sit under being proclaimed the scriptures, being proclaimed the great truths about your savior. He gives men the church and said, hey, here's people to go alongside you and help you through this battle. And God gives the church these things in order that they might, when they're weak and feel so helpless, be reminded of the truth that is found in Christ and hold their confidence firm to the end. We exhort one another daily, not so that it sounds like I'm just like holier than you and, and, and talk about Jesus more than you. We exhort one another daily because I know how weak I am. And I know how strong my flesh feels sometimes. And I know that that dead body that is now dead and gone is still clinging somehow. And I have to get rid of it. And I can only do that by the spirit and promises of God. And I know how weak I am to defeat my flesh. And I know that I'm not the only one. So I know that if I need exhortation daily from God and his word and from my brothers and sisters, then everyone else does too. And so we exhort one another daily concerning the truth of Jesus Christ. 
because we know he is the only sufficient means to bring us through this pilgrimage into the promised land. Verse 14, we've come to share in Christ. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the goal of all of this. That's the goal of our exhortation. That each person would hold their original confidence firm to the end. So, we saw what failed. What failed was a congregation who was reliant on themselves. We saw what succeeds. Exhortation concerning Christ. A community that, that, that exhorts one another concerning the truth of our greater Moses. We go back to those who failed. Verse 15. Community failure. We must hold our confidence firm to the end. Why, it says. Because those who were in the rebellion, who hardened their hearts, fell in the wilderness. And listen to the wording here. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? All of them. Every single one. Who, who was he mad at? Who, who did God's wrath fall out on? Those who were disobedient. To whom did he swear that they wouldn't enter his rest? The disobedient ones. Again, we're not to come to this passage and say, well, I'll just be, I'll just, I'll just obey perfectly. <laughs> Look at verse 19. They, they, they were not able to enter, well, we'd say because they were disobedient or they disobeyed. No, they were not able to enter because they didn't believe. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's why they couldn't enter. The disobedience of sin is inclusive of every single person. All of them fell in the wilderness. There was not a single person who made it through there besides the two that believed the promise of God. All of them fell in the wilderness. And so what the author is saying is not, hey, you need to not be like them. What he's saying is you are like them. You're so prone to fall in the wilderness. All of them fell. You have a 0% chance of survival. They fell. Why? Because they didn't believe the promise. They did not believe the promise. We need, if we're going to understand the sufficiency of the promise, we need to understand the frailty of man here. Like, literally, I don't... I don't know how to express this any stronger. All of them fell in the wilderness. All of them disobeyed God. The only way, the only way for man to obey God is to believe the promise. It must come in that order. The only way that they could have been obedient in the wilderness is if they were empowered by the strength of God to do so. And so they didn't enter because they didn't believe. If they had believed, they would have been able to obey, but they didn't believe. And so they disobeyed and rebelled against God to the point where his wrath struck them dead. Our only strength in obedience comes from the one who gives us the strength. Our only, our only means of obedience comes from the power of God to make us obey. If we are going to obey God, we must do it 
with the, the strength that comes from believing the promise that he gives us the strength to obey. Otherwise, we end up, like these Israelites in the wilderness, falling. And that goes back to that exhortation. How do we exhort one another? Hey, you can't do it on your own. You're not going to make it on your own. But by the power of Christ, by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, by the one who, who crucified your sins and rose to life again, by his strength, you're secure. By his strength, you can get home. By his strength, you will pass through this pilgrimage into the promised land. Point four then, back to community success. All the way through verse 10. What we see here is a description of the promise we have. So, so we've been saying believe the promise, and now the author goes on to say, now here's the promise you believe. Here's the greatness of this promise. He says, therefore, verse 1, while his promise of entering his rest still stands, we ought to fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to have reached it. Uh, I know we've kind of gone through what this rest is before. Um, the rest in this passage being that promised land, being, being the end, being where we go when we totally rest from all our labors, when we totally rest from sin and misery, when we are completely redeemed and found full in Christ Jesus. That's the rest spoken of. And that rest still remains. The author will make that argument. But for now, he tells us fear, lest anyone should seem to have failed to reach it. And we don't understand fear rightly most of the time. Fear gets reduced to something it's not. Fear, in regards to our position as covenant children of God, is a reliance upon Christ because of our knowledge of what will befall us if we were judged rightly according to ourselves. The fear of those not reaching the promise is a fear not in the insufficiency of Christ to carry them, but in the insufficiency of them to make it themselves. And so we fear that anybody would become self-reliant put their trust in themselves, put their trust back into the law, put themselves, their trust back into something they're doing and not upon Christ who has done it for them. The, the fear is, is that, that I, after knowing everything Christ has done for me, would go back and say, but I'll do it myself. Because after I know everything that Christ has done for me, if I'm still reliant upon myself for my salvation... There's no, other where, there's no other place I can go. There's no other message that can be given. So again, the fear is a true and reverent fear of the wrath of God that falls upon disobedient people. And that fear then comes when we look to ourselves and we say, my flesh is so disobedient and I deserve thy deepest wrath, O Lord. And we fear. But that fear then is immediately overcome by joy when we behold, when we behold the Christ who took that wrath on our behalf. And so the fear we have in God and in the perfection of his law and in the failure of us leads us to a greater joy and sufficiency in Christ. Because every time we are to fall into fear of the law, we see just how insufficient we are and it leads us back to a greater view of how sufficient Christ is. And so we're fearing 
were truly fearing that anybody would rely at all on the law, would rely at all on anything other than Christ and fail to enter the promise. Because it still stands. Good news, verse 2 says, came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because why? They weren't united by faith with those who listened. The message they heard did not benefit them because they didn't believe. See, they had good news preached to them. They had, the, the, the word here is basically the gospel. The gospel preached to them um, in, in, in a in a manner of, here's the promise of God, believe and live, right? Even Israel in the Old Testament had the promise of God proclaimed to them. What they did is they continued to rely on themselves instead of on the promise of God. Good news came to them. And the good news was not obey and live. The good news was, I promise to give you this land. Do you believe that? The promise was, I will bring you to the wilderness. Do you believe that? The promise was that Passover lamb. They didn't believe the promise. They had the promise, but they didn't believe the promise. And therefore, they failed to enter. And the question then is, will you believe the good news? Or will you be like the Israelites in the wilderness? For we who have believed, verse 3 says, enter that rest. Why? Because he swore in his wrath that they wouldn't enter the rest, even though his works were finished from the foundation of the world. The argument of the apostle here, the argument of the author here, comes through to say that um, the argument is there is a rest that has existed ever since the foundation of the world. God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. When God rested, the apostle here presumes upon that, that that rest was not for God alone, but extends to his people. So, so in the creation of the world, there was a rest that was created in which God himself rested and invited his people into. Verse 4 says this. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But what happens? Well, in verse 5, God says, they don't enter my rest. And verse 6 says, It therefore remains for some to enter it, but those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed. So, so this rest can be gotten by obedience, but they didn't enter because they weren't obedient. So therefore, he concludes, that God appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Again, 400 years after they had entered Canaan, God still says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There's still a rest that remains for the people of God. There's some sort of rest that can be entered, but it has not been entered yet. So he concludes in verse 8, well, it wasn't even Joshua that entered this rest. This rest was based on creation, not based on Israel. So even when Joshua entered the land of Canaan, he still didn't enter the rest of creation, which we find in Genesis. So then there remains a, a Sabbath rest, he says, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The thought here gets very specific. 
The thought here is that the Sabbath has existed since God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath was given to Israel in Mosaic law with, with certain what we'd call positive commands. Okay, there were things attached to the Sabbath in the, in the, in the Ten Commandments that do not apply at all today. And I think everyone agrees with that, that we're not stoning people who don't observe the Sabbath. We don't do that. Right? That does not apply today. But the Sabbath command given to Israel was based upon the fact that God rested on the seventh day in creation. And that remains throughout all the time. Okay? So the Sabbath is made in creation. The people of God rest in God on that day. And then, um, and then Israel is commanded to observe this Sabbath. They fail to do so in many respects. Um, but now the author says that in Christ, there remains a Sabbath rest for us. Christ comes. He's the greater Israel. Okay? Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness disobedient. Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness as the obedient firstborn son of God. And he defeated the devil as he was in the wilderness and did not succumb to his temptations. And then Christ goes to the cross. And on a week we call Good Friday, he dies. The Jewish Sabbath. On the Jewish Sabbath, Christ dies. He rises again on the first day of the week. When Christ rises again on the first day of the week, the church historically would hold that that instituted what we call the Lord's Day, which, which the church would call the Christian Sabbath. And so the believers who are hearing this news here, when, when hearing about the Sabbath that remains for the people of God, that would immediately bring their minds back to Christ's resurrection. That would bring their minds back to the sufficiency that is found in Christ. The rest, then, that is talked about in verse 9, is based upon the fact that Christ, as the perfectly obedient, true Israel, who obeyed in the wilderness, entered the rest of God in his ascension, and therefore can lead us there too. Verse 10, I made the argument in the past, he, he is, is proper, proper, proper wording there. So verse 10 where ESV says, whoever has entered God's rest is better translated, he who has entered God's rest, or rather, he who has entered his own rest is, is, is the truth of the wording there. Okay, So he who has entered his own rest has rested from his works as God did from his. So the Christ, the one true obedient son, enters God's rest and rests from his works as God did from his works. Christ accomplishes everything he needed to accomplish here on earth, goes and sits at the right hand of the Father on high, and invites us and leads us into that rest in him. We will rest from all our labors, from all our sin, from all our misery for eternity. And right now, for us then, this passage says, remains a Sabbath-keeping, or a certain day of the week, set apart for the worship of God, in order that we might be reminded of the sufficiency that is found in the Christ who has entered God's rest. So just as Jews had the Sabbath on the seventh day, they said, hey, God created the world and rested on this day. Now the author says, Christians have a day in which they rely and, and worship the Christ who instituted the new creation at his resurrection. 
There's, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What does this mean in this context? The point in this context to the recipients who would have understood all the history and things that came along with this was basically you come together as a church and you worship the Son of God and you have this day that is a pledge to you that God will bring you home. Each and every week, the church would come together and they'd worship Christ together and they'd glorify the Son together and they'd know that that day of which they were coming together on was the day which Christ rose from the dead and Christ rose from the dead and went to glory with God in the heavens. And Christ rested from all his labors. And so each week when the church would come together, they understood that day as a pledge that would say, hey, when we're coming together on this day and we're resting from our normal labors and we're resting from the normal things we do, we're reminded of the fact that eternity is coming and it has been purchased by Christ and he will bring us forward to that redemption. They had a guarantee of their redemption shown to them in this physical day. And so the thought of the author is, exhort one another daily, and then each day of the week, each, each one day of the week, you come together as the church, and you encourage one another and say, hey, Christ will bring you home. Christ is sufficient. This exhortation, again, does not have to be robust, but it does have to be an exhortation. When we come together as a church, the congregants, we as the congregants, we as God's people, have duties given to us by God. Colossians 3, right? Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Encourage one another with these things. That's a duty given by God. You come together and you you sing together. You worship together. You encourage one another. Here we're told you come together and you exhort one another. And so, so we, we come together as God's people on his day. And it's a day God has given us to gather and just get a foretaste of what heaven will be like. It's a day God has given us to, to see what glory awaits. And we just, we just get, a little, we get a little taste of it as we gather. And we're shown what God has done for his people. And we, we come together, and whatever the pains of the week have been, whatever the struggles have been, we get to hear from our brothers and sisters, hey, your high priest made a once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. Trust in him. Your Christ is sufficient. Rely on him. Your king fights for you. Follow him. Your, your Moses is faithful to bring you to the promised land. Let him lead you. Your, your, your God is glorious. Consider him. Your second Adam, God, did all the obedience for you. Put your faith in him. We as the church get to be for our brothers and sisters the encouragement and the exhortation that we all, as God's church, not just in here, 
but throughout time and history and the world, we as God's church inherit the promised land together. And although we struggle with sin right now, we enter that rest where we will struggle no more. And we will forever be with our Lord in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have brought, bought a people. That you sent your Christ to purchase us with your blood. That we are redeemed by his blood. And we find our sufficiency in him. And that you've given us a, a day to worship you. That we get to come together as a church and be encouraged by our brothers and sisters about our Savior. And we get to come together as a church and sing to you. That we ha have the means, Lord, in Christ to exhort one another every day. Help us, Lord, to be diligent to do so. Help us to realize our weaknesses of the flesh. Help us to cast off that body of sin by your power. And help us to encourage one another to do so. To exhort one another to get rid of that old dead body because the time is coming when this body will be renewed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we partake in communion, uh, just remind us of the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, by Christ. And from, we'll be reading here from Matthew 26 in uh, that promised new covenant that was sealed by his blood on the cross. And he says here in Matthew 26, verse 26, uh, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That great proclamation, that great promise that... Uh, his sacrifice is sufficient and that great promise that he has gone to prepare a place that he has paved the way and he has entered into that eternal rest and he gathers his people into that eternal rest as well and that great and glorious promise that we have as as we partake in communion as a as a reminder of that that as cody proclaimed so beautifully that there is a rest that awaits uh, the great rest that it that he will bring us to completion and there will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more sin. Uh, and we will be like him, as, as John says, uh, not in divinity, but as in perfection and that of no more sin. So let's partake in communion and with that on the forefront of our mind, with great joy and knowing that his promises cannot be thwarted and, and it will be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, we thank you for this great ordinance that your son has given us through his blood, through his body. And we can continuously remind one another of the great promise. The great promise in Christ and in that he has fulfilled all that he came to fulfill. That he has entered that rest. And we can take joy and, and, and gladness, even in our difficulties, even in the, the, the turmoil and, and the strife of, of life, that there is a great rest that waits. 
Father, I pray, pray that you bless the elements of communion, set them aside for, for a holy use. And that we approach the Lord's Supper not as perfect men and women, but as those who believe in your Son. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.